Shooting Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Today's episode is very near and dear to my heart. We're talking about barbed wire, and I have a feeling that the personalities are going to take front and center stage, which makes this a perfect part two to last week's episode, The Personalities of the Wild West. Now, why is this important to me? Well, it turns out that ground zero for barbed wire research and development and manufacturing was a little farming community called DeKalb, Illinois, a place where I spent four very important years as an undergrad at Northern Illinois University, where I learned about barbed wire, and I gotta be honest, at the time, I could not have cared less. Uh, For some reason, it just did not appeal to me. I didn't understand its importance. I've come to see the error of my ways, and I now recognize barbed wire as a very important piece, a tool, if you will, for settling the West. And I know it's a cruel item, uh, and I'm a big animal lover, so I do understand that. I'm not a hypocrite. Uh, We're going to talk about this from a historical perspective, because I do think it's important. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention a great documentary, not only for the history of barbed wire, but also for the history of the NIU production program, and that is Barbed Wire Pioneers, headed by Jeffrey Chown, research and development by the grad students at the time. And this kind of set off a whole series of collaborations which allowed grad students to kind of help develop a documentary uh, as part of a class, which is a great program that I was a part of as well. I rewatched it in preparation for this episode, and hopefully there is a version online that I can link to, and if so, you'll be able to find it on the Steve Bigelin bio page and watch it in its entirety. And who is Steve Bigelin and why would I go to his bio page? I bet you're asking. Well, I'm going to tell you. Steve Bigelin is the preeminent historian in DeKalb, especially when it comes to barbed wire. And I'm sitting down with him today to talk about the three main guys who made this a reality. Uh, and that would be Jacob Haish, Joseph Glidden, and Isaac Elwood. Uh, so let's get right to it. Steve, thank you so much for being on the show today. So you've been in you've been in DeKalb since '67. I came here to attend NIU, got bachelor's and master's degrees in history and secondary education. And while I was in grad school, took a tour of Elwood House one day and fell in love with DeKalb history. Wow, so, so your tour of the Elwood House is kind of what did it? Yeah. Wow, so what was it that was so magical about the Elwood House? I'd always liked the architecture of that period. Mm-hmm. And the family story and their involvement in, in the barbed wire industry and everything just spellbound me. Wow. I was on, well, I've been a volunteer at Elwood House since 1972 when I took that first tour. I was on the board of directors there for 17 years, served three years as president of the museum. Wow. 
So you've kind of done it all. So now, have you? Are you an heir to the fortune at all? Have you kind of written yourself into the history? Unfortunately, no. I I know I I did know the last three Elwoods that actually grew up in the house. Isaac Elwood the second, mm-hmm. his sister Patty Elwood Toll, and their baby brother John Elwood before all three died. So I had many occasions over the years to uh, to pick their brains for knowledge. Wow. So like first-hand accounts. They weren't just people whose names were in the history book to me. I physically knew them. Wow. That's incredible. Um, you know, it's funny because you and I had very opposite reactions to the Elwood house uh, because when I, when I was at NIU, Go Huskies, I – you know, I took the obligatory tour of the Elwood House, and we learned about barbed wire. And I remember everyone talking about how important barbed wire was. And I just, I, I don't know, I just never got it. Although I, I do remember this because um, I remember going to the Elwood House and seeing, I don't know if it's still there. If it is, I'd love a picture because I'd love to put it up. But there was a wall of probably at least 100, probably 200 samples of barbed wire. Not just from the big three from DeKalb that we're going to talk mm-hmm. about, but from all mm-hmm. over. And that kind of spellbound to me. That's what I remember from the Elwood House, uh, but literally nothing else. That wall has been scaled down. At one time, there were actually more than 300 different kinds of barbed wire displayed in what is now the Visitor Center building. And, uh, yeah, of course, years ago, there were supposedly packets for as many as 1,500 different kinds of barbed wire. Wow. Well, so why the scale back? That thing was amazing. It's the only thing I remember. How could you scale it back? The, the exhibit gallery that w- that it was in had its purpose changed. There's still some historical material on that level of the Visitor Center building, but not nearly as extensive as, as it once was. A lot of the what had been the barbed wire gallery now has oversized and large photographs of many of the automobiles that Perry Elwood, the son who inherited the house in 1910, had over the years. He was an early automobile enthusiast, though not the first person in DeKalb to own a car. The first person in DeKalb to actually own a car is said to have been the owner of a small bicycle shop in downtown DeKalb. I love that, that he owned bicycles and then immediately adopted the newer technology, which is automobiles. Yeah. Really forward yeah. thinking. And I got to tell you, researching barbed wire is very difficult. And I'm going to tell you why. There's a little movie in the 90s uh, called Barbed Wire starring Pamela Anderson. And that comes up all the time mm. in searches for this, which has nothing to do mm-hmm. with barbed wire. I don't know if you talk about that in your, in your history lessons or not. Not that particular one, no. Uh, in 1998, there was a class at NIU, a a graduate class in the communication department that did a, uh, an almost hour long video entitled barbed wire pioneers inventing a community. And it dealt with the roles of Elwood Glidden and Haitian, the creation of of barbed wire fencing, and then their influence on creating what became NIU. Yes, about four years ago, through another local group, that the professor who had who had that class of students managed to reissue the VHS tape as a DVD. 
You know, it's funny because that would be Dr. Chown, who was one of my favorite professors yeah. Yeah. when I was there. Uh, I've, known, I've known him ever since that time. Yeah. So Barbed Wire Pioneers, that's the preeminent Barbed Wire documentary as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I actually have a VHS copy that I had to yeah. research for this uh, that, I, that I subsequently digitized just so I could kind of scroll through it a little bit quicker. Um, but it's, it's a really great study, uh, sp- specifically about these three guys, but there were, you know, also the importance of barbed wire to the West. And I think that's kind of what I missed when I toured the Elwood house is that ah, bar- mm-hmm. because barbed wire is extraordinarily important because here's, what's exciting about it is there were three things, uh, that really, kind of pushed westward expansion and you know this i'm sure uh railroads were number one to kind of transport goods and people and then you had the telegraph and later the telephone which allowed intercontinental communication and then you had barbed wire which allowed people to settle cattle and protect crops and to protect the Mm -hmm. railroads and so those are really the three things that allowed for westward expansion which is the prequel to the entire wild west that's how important this stuff was and I didn't realize that, Steve. I'm sure you do now. If you stopped 10 people on the street in DeKalb and asked them, where was Isaac Elwood's barbed wire factory? Uh-huh. They probably wouldn't be able to tell you. Right. right now and for about five years, that building has been sitting unoccupied. It was for over 40 years a car dealership that relocated out along Sycamore Road to a more modern facility, and no one has yet bought the historic building to repurpose it for any use. Wow, that's so, so it still exists, the factory. Oh, yeah. Built, in, built between 1877 and 1881. I've known the owner of the building for quite a number of years, and uh, variously over the years, he's let me take local tour groups into the building to look at it. Wow. The second floor of the building is especially interesting, especially to me, because all wooden support beams, wooden floor, everything virtually the way it was built between 1877 and 1881. Very cavernous structure. So how come this hasn't been a protected building? Well, the state of Illinois, over 40 years ago, when they did their architectural and historical surveys, here in DeKalb County, looking for buildings that could be listed on the National Register, did list it, but to this date, only five buildings in DeKalb have ever been listed on the National Register, and none since 1980. It's up to owners or private individuals. There are any number of the older buildings on the NIU campus, like Altgeld Hall, for example, that could certainly qualify for listing on the National Register. The university has never nominated them. That's so funny. To the best of my knowledge, Northern is the only major state university in Illinois that doesn't have at least one building on the National Register. That's so bizarre, because Altgeld Hall would definitely uh, qualify. Especially since the restoration of the building. Right. Yeah, yeah. Now, before we get into the history of barbed wire, you know, I think it kind of, it's one of these 
things that kind of needs a brand overhaul. You know, because when people think of barbed wire now, they typically think of Lucille, who's Negan's bat from The Walking Dead, which is ridiculous, by the way, because Mick Foley and Terry Funk were doing barbed wire wrapped bats. 25 years before Negan and theirs were much cooler. Uh, you know, you got it's on top of prisons. It's you know, it's it's was used yeah. World War One, World War Two. So it's kind of seen as this as this very ominous. Uh, you know, it's designed to keep people out. You know, you see it on top of prisons mm-hmm. and, and things like that, which are designed to keep people in. But I think it needs a brand overhaul because. It, it's, you know, despite its kind of devious uh, uses and, you know, the nickname The Devil's Rope, uh, right. I, think th- I think that the the ultimate use of it was pretty interesting at the very least. You know, I can't necessarily – being an, an animal advocate, I can't say that I love mm-hmm. the use of barbed wire, but I do understand its historical importance. Um, so let, let's get into that because it all kind of starts with the 1862 Homesteaders Act, which allowed people, yeah. you know, giving people free land out west if you farmed it for five years. Um, so why don't we start? Let me say one thing before we start while it's, yeah. while it's still in my head. Yeah. I don't know if you're aware of this, but in 1979, the DeKalb City Council passed an ordinance prohibiting the use of barbed wire in any residential neighborhood. And that that is still active. That is, is still active, still on the books. It's interesting, but I imagine it was out of use in on um, you know, in for personal use in uh in like your homes and stuff like that, right? Or was is pretty that, much, yeah. That is really interesting yeah. that it's that it that it is illegal. So I don't know where you want to start because there's this weird overlap where it gets kind of confusing when you start talking about barbed wire patents, at least for me when I was researching, because barbed wire patents Mm -hmm. can go back as far as 1853. The Homesteaders Act in 1862 kind of pushed forward uh, the need for some kind of cheap fencing out west, both mm-hmm. to protect the cattle and also the crops from the cattle and also the cattle from the railroads. Um, but let, maybe let's take it a step back and talk about um, the early patents on barbed wire. As you just said, the very earliest was by William H. Merriweather, who was from Texas. And it, was just, it didn't even have bars or metal projections of any kind on it. It was a, a strip of rippled heavy iron, but he got a patent for it. And as barbed wire collecting subsequently became popular to barbed wire collectors, it's always been the first barbed wire. Huh. And that's now why was it considered the first barbed wire if it's just rippled steel? I really can't answer that, to be honest okay, with you. Fair enough. I'm not sure what the what the, the thought process behind it was. Okay. But then of course later in the eighteen sixties you had uh Michael Kelly out in New York State who patented the Diamond Point wire, which unfortunately didn't hold up in the various legal suits over the years as a foundation patent. Yeah, that one's an interesting one because, I mean, in 1865, France was doing the same thing. So Louis yeah. Jeannin, that was in 1865, which is, you know, right after the Homesteaders Act. And then in 1867, 
uh, the first barbed wire patent specifically for livestock fencing was in Kent, Ohio, to Lucian B. Smith. Uh, so some people regard mm-hmm. him as the inventor of barbed wire. Some people consider Michael Kelly the first successful barbed wire creator for exactly what you're saying, and that was in 1968. Um, which are these? All these guys predate the Big Three because you know in 1953 that's 20 years before the big date in 1873. Uh, so first of all, I, I want you to tell me a little bit about what, what's the battle with the first barbed wire um, patent. Like who do, who do you think really is the inventor before we get to even before we get to the Kelp? February 29th, 1892, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Glidden patent, purely and simply. That's so, and that when that was the what was now called the winner. Um, so that was, and that was yeah. a big patent. And even even in, in Gooden's time, it was nicknamed the winner. As a matter of fact, the Gooden Homestead Association here uses their periodic newsletter under the title the winner. Well, now now hold on a second here, Steve. I, I got to test yeah. you on this for a second because now you're right. Legally, according to the letter of the law, the in, the official successful patent uh, was Joseph Glidden in eighteen. You know, and that, and that I think the patent was actually uh, registered in eighteen seventy three or four. Seventy four. Seventy four. Yeah. So that wasn't the first patent was happening. Now, as a historian, I got to appeal to your his, historic roots here, uh, or historian roots, because. I, that's the legal answer, Steve. Who do you think's the real inventor here? Because you've got, you know, you, and you're talking 40 years before that Supreme Court thing is passed down. You got people inventing forms of barbed wire. Um, you know, take your DeKalb loyalty out of this. Let's get a real answer. Who do you think is the true originator? If I remember correctly, from what I read over the years, the Smith and Kelly patents failed to tell what the purpose of the second wire was, which was, in Glidden's case, to help hold the barb in place, to keep it from slipping. Right, which is important. That's like the, that's a really big concept. But those earlier patents weren't specific enough as to what the purpose of that twist was. Well, they still did it, though. I mean, they still had it. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. They did sell it, but not to the extent that uh, that Elwood and Glidden and and Jacob Hayes did here. Right. No, look, I agree. I am surprised at you as a historian. Uh, Me, I'm saying that those other guys are actually the inventors of barbed wire. Forget the technicality. Forget the loophole of labeling what the second wire is for. Those guys kind of cracked the nut and laid the foundation for the big three. Um, You know, obviously, when we're looking at history, uh, the people who sold the most barbed wire are the three guys we're going to talk about, which are Joseph Glidden, Jacob Hayesh, and Isaac Elwood. Um, but but I, I don't know. I don't know that they were – I have a really hard time calling any three of them the actual inventor of barbed wire, although they were the most prolific sellers of it. And their story is really interesting because they were – they all kind of met in 1873. Uh, so tell me about that fated meeting and was it as um, historic as the, you'd like to believe? <sighs> Sources over the years have misrepresented – the event that Elwood Glidden and Hayes met at in the spring of 1873. They, call it, they oftentimes have referred to it simply as the county fair. It was not 
the DeKalb County Fair. There was no DeKalb County Fair until 1888 when the, the Sandwich Fair, which has been going on continuously for 130 years now, started. Now, when you say the Sandwich small, Fair, you mean the, the town of Sandwich, not a festival of, of bread, delicious food. Not a sandwich in, in DeKalb County, but they do not, down in Sandwich, they do not like their fair called the DeKalb County Fair. It's the Sandwich Fair. And there was a big hardcover book written about the fair oh, about 20 years ago or so. I'm, I'm looking for it here in my bookshelf, and I'm not seeing it. Oh, there it is down there. Yeah. The Sandwich Fair since 1888 is what the book is titled. Got it. Okay. Uh, sandwich the city, uh, not the bread-based uh, lunchtime right. delicacy. Right. San- sandwich, Illinois, the town. That's what, I didn't realize that it wasn't called the DeKalb County Fair. So that's a big – That's a, so where did they meet then? Joseph, well, all right, this, this small agricultural fair that Elwood Glidden and Hayes met at was held on a portion of what is now the NIU campus, very close to where Altgill Hall was later constructed. The, 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 I, I, always, I, I, can, I always forget what the actual name of the group that started that fair was. It's written up only in one county history from 1885. <laughs> wow. But that group originally met in Sycamore and then lost uh, the, their meeting site Glidden was apparently a member of that group and offered to let them hold their fairs periodically on a portion of his farm, which the the original NIU campus was. And the story is that Elwood Glidden and Hayes met by coincidence one day at the fair when they were all standing at the exhibit that Henry Rose from Waterman, Illinois, 12 miles or so southwest of here, had 16-foot-long sections of wood about a quarter inch in diameter that he had pounded metal brads into. And he said, while this isn't a new type of fencing in and of itself, it's an attachment that can be added to a smooth wire or wooden fence and help to, ser- help to serve as a deterrent against livestock, especially trying to get in or out of it. Elwood, Glidden, and Hank, as the story goes, each kind of left scratching their heads, thinking there ought to be a better way of putting a sharp metal projection onto a piece of wire. And they started tinkering with what became barbed wire. Wow. So they didn't all meet at the same time. So they they each kind of individually walked by and they met, saw. They, they did, the story is they did actually meet one afternoon at the little agricultural fair. Wow. So they all started at the same moment. That's one of the few times in, in local recorded history when the three of them ever were together at the same place at the same time. Well, it's kind of prophetic in a way because they're meeting at the at the future place of Alt Geld Hall, yeah. which they will end up being the beneficiaries uh, or benefactors that, for. That supposedly was the only other time that the three of them were ever together when the cornerstone was laid for Alt Geld in 1895. <laughs> Something magical about that specific plot of land <laughs> that brought these three together is their crossroads. 
Um, so, so they all kind of started at the same place, at least from an inventor standpoint. Uh, but they all had three very different approaches to this. Now, I'd like to learn a little bit about these three guys. I'm going to go out on a limb and just preface by saying I love Jacob Hayes. He always seems to me like the outsider who is always struggling, um, but the the hardest working guy because he didn't have all of the um, kind of partnerships that developed between Elwood and Glidden. And and if we're using modern, like kind of a modern idea, Joseph Glidden seemed like kind of the genius and Elwood seemed like kind of the marketing guy, almost like a tag along in a way, because he wasn't really good enough at creating his own designs, but he was a genius at selling it. But those two partnered up and it was always felt like two on one and then later on four on one. Uh, that's why I like. I this. agree with you hundred percent. I've always considered Hayes to be my favorite of the three. <laughs> yeah, and he definitely had more of the personality. So let's talk about them a little bit. Um, why don't we start? Why don't we start with with Hayes since he's your favorite? Um, just tell me a little bit about Jacob Hayes, kind of going into uh, the barbed wire world. He arrived in DeKalb County in the late eighteen forties, settled on a piece of property. Uh, southeast of DeKalb, not too far from what is now the town of Hinckley, where he farmed. When the railroad came through this part of the county, though, through what are now DeKalb and Malton and Corlin, he decided to move up to the new town, which had one of the, the first railroads in the county. Supposedly, he bought carload of lumber for $100 in Chicago and it shipped out here and used that to start in business as a lumber dealer and building contractor. Okay. And as a result, he became interested in the need of farmers in particular for cheap, durable fencing. Though in the 1860s, before he began tinkering with barbed wire, he was selling Osage orange seeds to grow thick, thorny bushes that could be used as an enclosure. But they, he sold the, the Osage orange seeds for $5 a pound or $80 a bushel. But he realized in not too much time that it was too expensive, took up too much tillable land, needed too much maintenance. It wasn't going to solve the problem. It also took five years to grow them into a suitable size yeah. to stop yeah. any livestock. Yeah. There are still outlying sections, though, in the Cal County where you can still find remnants of Osage orange hedges. Oh, wow. Years ago, uh, when I was with some some long-time uh, Elwood House people we were driving east out of DeKalb on Pleasant Street and stopped where there was uh, a, a little Osage orange patch. Uh, are they, um, so they're on the outskirts of town? I mean, these are living pieces of history, literally. This would have been uh, five, six miles east of DeKalb. That's incredible. And I should mention for people who don't know, DeKalb is still kind of a farming community. So it's a large town, but there are, there's quite a bit of farmland out there. Um, so a lot of the stuff could still exist as far as like from, a, from an agricultural standpoint. Not impossible, yeah. Yeah. There was one of the most uh, interested local groups now is the DeKalb 
Daha, they call them, so DeKalb Area Agricultural Heritage Association. <laughs> uh, over the last couple of years, they put up a number of historical markers in DeKalb, honoring both DeKalb Ag for the hybrid corn, and more recently, just a, less than a year ago, at DeKalb Public Library, they put up a, a plaque honoring Jacob Haig wow. as the first plaque that, was, that the state of Illinois produced that actually has a picture of a person on it. They managed to put a photograph of Haig huh. on the marker. Oh, that's incredible. He, he's earned it. That's good. I like that. Oh, yeah, very much so. So he so he gives up you know he, he as you mentioned he kind of sees the fault in growing trees uh, as a as an agricultural barrier and so then he starts getting down in 19, in 1873 kind of figuring out how to create the you know pre barbed wire and so he creates a couple of patents one of them being key which is the wire stretcher which becomes kind of key to the patent wars later on what was so special about his uh, wire stretcher. That I really can't go go into. Don't don't know that much about it from a technical okay, standpoint. Fair. But he he also claimed in the early patent suits against Glidden Elwood that, and he he claimed he had forgotten that he had done this, but that he had actually had probably sold the first piece of barbed wire to a to a private individual mm-hmm. for use. Oh, that's and cool. had the man who had bought the wire. <laughs> just come into his carpenter shop one day and acknowledge the fact that he had bought that <laughs> early strand of wire from Hayes. Oh, that's and awesome. And he was still in use on his property. <laughs> Does anyone still have that, or is that gone? <laughs> gone. Oh, God, that would have been amazing. Uh, okay, so that that's Haitian in a nutshell. Um, I love this guy. Uh, so now let's talk about Joseph Glidden. So he goes away, and he kind of perfects um, kind of the the barb aspect of it and these you know this happened this all happens in 1873 you know right after they see the fair these guys get to work right away so tell me a little bit about early joseph glidden and then his first patent he was from new england originally and a cousin of his by the name of russell huntley had come to northern illinois in 1837 I kept sending letters back to relatives in the East telling them what a great farming area this part of of the country was. And what, like I say, one of his cousins was Joseph Gordon, who after reading a number of, of, of Huntley's letters was inclined to make his way out to the Midwest in conjunction with his brothers, Josiah Willard and Stephen. And they supposedly worked their way west using a threshing machine of some kind to help pay for their their trip. Wow, okay. And then Glenn bought something on the order of 600 acres for a dollar and a quarter an acre after he arrived in what became DeKalb. Initially built a simple log cabin, which is illustrated in one of the old county histories. Later built his uh, more pretentious brick farmhouse, which is now the center for the the Joseph Glidden Homestead and Historical Center. And uh, became concerned over the day-to-day needs and problems of being a farmer. And his wife in particular, Lucinda, 
was concerned about this one cow they had, whose whose name I believe was Brindle, that was notorious for getting into her garden. And she wanted Joseph to come up with some way of keeping the cow out of the garden. And he started tinkering with, well, after after seeing the, the rose exhibit at the agricultural fair, he started tinkering with her hairpins, using them to fashion barbs with. And she kept blaming her daughter, Elva, for having taken her hairpins and then caught Joseph using them one day <laughs> in his experiments in the old basement kitchen. That's amazing. So he was stealing all of her hairpins to create uh, a barbed wire fencing <laughs> to keep their cow out of the garden. And over the years at Elwood House, one of the few things that has ever been stolen, and we don't know who did it or when it actually happened, was a sample of Glidden's original handmade barbed wire. Wow. And its disappearance was noticed just a very short time after a group of barbed wire collectors happened to tour Elwood House. Oh, wow. So whether one of them actually swiped it or not, we don't know. And it was a grand-nephew of Joseph Glidden's who donated that wire to Elwood House. He lived until he was 108, dying in December of 2011. Holy cow. He was a local banker for a long time involved in real estate development. I knew him myself. His name was Charles Brott. His mother was one of Joseph Glidden's nieces, as was her sister, Annie Glidden, who the road is named for. Yeah, Annie Glidden Road is one of the the largest thoroughfares in uh, in DeKalb through NIU. Yeah. Uh, so now, hold on a second. I, I, I'm kind of curious about this heist. So you're saying, just so I understand this correctly, coincidentally, after this extraordinarily rare original piece of Joseph Glidden's handmade barbed wire goes missing, a couple of collector barbed wire collectors had come through the Elwood house. Uh, I mean, this sounds almost like an Ocean's Eleven type scenario. I mean, it, it, it <laughs> must have gone undetected. Uh, you know, I mean, this is and this is a valuable piece of history. I remember having seen that wire in my early days as a, a guide at Elwood House, and then all of a sudden, one day, it wasn't there anymore. Wow. I mean, how easy would it have been to take? I don't know why I'm fascinated with this. I mean, this is, this is, this is disturbing to me, to say the least. Back in the, back in the days when that wire disappeared, the local Chamber of Commerce held business fairs in the NIU Fieldhouse in the spring and fall. And as I recall, it was in the fall of the year that that wire disappeared. So somebody might have picked it up, put it underneath their heavy coat that they were wearing, and left without being detected. Unbelievable. You can't trust anyone. I mean, this is, I'll tell you what, I'm going to go on record as saying this. I've said it a lot privately. This is, if if I ever become, you know, not if, when I become a major uh, celebrity and I have 
they people want to open up a museum in my honor. I'm going to say, no way. I don't trust the people that come through there not to take – I mean it's I – I, I don't know that I would give anything to the public. Not that I don't like the public. Not that I don't like individual people. But when, mm-hmm. you, get, when you get a bunch of people together, it's always the, – the least common denominator always seems to spoil the group. And the, the, just the thought of someone stealing a handmade hairpin-based section of barbed wire, especially collectors who should know better – uh, that's very disturbing to me. This is probably one of the most disturbing things that I've heard recently. So, um, in the late 1970s, when a longtime eye, ear, nose, and throat doctor passed away, I inherited some barbed wire from his collection. He had, he had come to DeKalb in 1911, opened his doctor's office on the second floor of Jacob Hayes' Opera House building in downtown DeKalb. Knew Hayes for many years, got bar wire and other uh, memorabilia from H before he died in 1926. I inherited a strand of original handmade wooden wire that he had. And I started showing that at bar wire shows. And had collectors coming up to me and asking, would you consider trading that? And I, I finally decided to start saying, yes, I would trade it if you would give me a Jacob Hayes barbed wire cane. Wait, hold on, Jacob Hayes barbed wire cane? What's that? You've never seen one, apparently. I have not. I guess sounds like I would remember <laughs> it if I did. <laughs> sounds pretty among, impressive. Among barbed wire collectors, it's over the years, it's become probably <laughs> the most sought after barbed wire collectible. Okay. This strand of wire that I had was less than 18 inches long. 18 inches is the standard collector's size for a piece of barbed wire. But I found one local collector who was a member of the old house board and was the chairman of the board of the old DeKal Trust and Savings Bank here in town who was willing to trade me one of four barbed wire canes that he had in his personal collection for that little strand of wire. We traded. Subsequently, he donated the wire back to Elwood House. <laughs> you pulled the biggest scam of the century right there. <laughs> I had, from, the, from the time I had first seen one of the canes, I fell in love with them because, again, of the fact that it was Hesha's creation. Yeah, yeah. I've got probably the largest single collection of exterior and interior photographs of Hesha's mansion that was torn down in 1961 for the parking lot of the First Lutheran Church. For a parking lot. I've probably got 50 or more slides of the exterior and interior of the house, and I most recently, back in January, showed them to the uh, the NIU Women's Club at a a potluck supper they had. I've shared them also with two local descendants of Jacob Hayes. Yeah, there's a great uh, Jesse LaRue, also known as Jesse Hayes, has yeah. a great website called yeah. A Twist in History. Uh, she is really great. Yeah, her website's amazing. Um, and, and again, I, the disrespect to Jacob, Jacob Hayes, I, they bulldozed his mansion for a parking lot. Like, that's... <laughs> I, I mean, uh, uh, 
did they did did the entire congregation go and spit on his grave too? Like that's like the worst. I mean, and and here's and it leads me to the point that you know we got to get to Elwood because El it's the Elwood House. Elwood House Elwood's house is still standing. The least creative of the three, uh, although a marketing genius. How is his house still standing and kind of like a symbol to barbed wire? And Jacob Hayes is buried. Over the years, I've come to believe that the reason that Elwood House was saved... This better be a conspiracy. ...was because the Hay House was torn down. Ah, okay. They were both for sale in the early 1960s. $25,000 was being asked for the Hay. $100,000 was being asked for Elwood House, and it's almost nine acres of property. There was no local historic preservation ethic in this town at that time. One of the two had to be lost in order for enough people to wake up and say, let's work to save what we still have. And 40 years ago, I was one of the two co-founders of the City of DeKalb Landmark Commission. Wow. So Haish becomes a martyr to save Elwood. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, given their feelings for each other, that's pretty ironic. At the time, at the time, the house was torn down. From what I told, it was torn down six years before I came to DeKalb, so I never saw it myself. But I've been told by more than one person over the years that there was quite an outcry in the congregation of the Lutheran Church, and that as many as 80 families supposedly left the First Lutheran Church and took their memberships to other Lutheran churches in DeKalb or Sycamore. I've had people who vehemently deny that that happened. But I've, I've determined also over the years, I've spent 45 years researching Jacob Hayes myself. If there are people still living who remember back to 61 when the house was torn down, if they supported the decision of the church to tear the house down, they're still to this day adamant that it was the right thing to do. If people in 1961 that are still living were opposed to the demolition, they remain opposed to the fact that it was torn down to this day. It was definitely controversial. Yeah, it sounds like it divided the community, as it should. I mean, that's a, I mean, I don't know, that's pretty upsetting to me that you guys would lose a house um, that's that important. Uh, so the Elwood House exists. It's still there. You can still visit it. It's a great. I mean, it's a great tour. It's well restored. Again, they have tons of examples of barbed wire. So how how did Elwood kind of fit into the equation of these big three? Um, w- before he partnered with Glidden, how did how did he kind of come to terms with the fact that his designs were inferior, um, but he was good at marketing? He was born in the little community of Salt Springville, New York, like near Lake Erie. Before he was born, his father supposedly was involved in dredging a section of the Erie Canal. And as a boy, Isaac is said to have sold his mother's homemade sauerkraut to teamsters who worked on the Erie Canal. Hold on, is that like an is that the eighteen fifties version of like a lemonade stand? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Enterprising young lad. One when when they discovered gold in California. Isaac got gold fever and headed to California. Supposedly spent two years panning for gold, two years working in a hardware store in Sacramento, 
saved up about $2,600 while I worked at the hardware store. And then in 1853, uh, decided to come back east. Stopped off what for what he thought would be a very brief visit with a couple of his brothers who already lived either in DeKalb or Sycamore. And they talked him into staying. And he used the money that he had made working at the hardware store to start his own hardware store in downtown DeKalb which supposedly was the first store of its kind in the very new community, which was only officially platted as a town in 1853 when the railroad was laid through here. So so through his hardware business, again, he became concerned over the need of area farmers in particular for cheap, durable fencing. And before he and Glidden opened their first real factory, what barbware they were making on Glidden's farm was sold through Elwood's hardware. Ah, got it. So they were partnering early on, like unofficially. Elwood bought a half interest in Joseph's patent for $265 in the summer of 1874, less than six months after they had applied for their patents, and several months before Glidden actually received his patent. Now, wasn't, isn't there kind of an interesting story where um, Elwood's wife kind of points out the fact that his design, that Glidden's design is better than uh, his design? The story is that Mr. and Mrs. Elwood, one Sunday afternoon, took a little buggy ride from their house on North 3rd Street out to the Glidden farm to see this new fence that he'd heard that Glidden had put up. And on the ride back, after seeing uh, the fence, Isaac asked Harriet for her opinion on it, and she took she pulled a bunch of it. She told him she thought what Glidden had was far superior in design and potential to what Isaac had worked on. He is said to have been so angry at her at what she told him that he didn't talk to her the rest of the night. But the following morning, after a good night's sleep, he thanked her for her honesty and then approached Glenn about buying into his patent. That's one of several stories as to how he and Glidden formed their partnership. That's really interesting. I mean, she was vital in him making that decision, yeah. talking sense into him, kind of laying it out for him. Uh, she could I – mean, she's – Potentially, could you could argue that she's responsible for his entire fortune? Yeah, you could you could say that. You could say that. And as wealthy as he was when he died in 1910, he left a 30 million dollar estate and only made one small philanthropic donation. He left twenty thousand dollars to something called the DeKalb County Old People's Home, and no one at Elwood House or in the local historic community has ever been able to determine just exactly what that DeKalb County old people's home was and whether they actually got the $20,000 that Elwood left them. <laughs> Wait, hold on, hold on. Let me see if I understand this correctly. So Elwood didn't give anything, any of his money away. He left an estate to his heirs. The only thing he left was $20,000 to some organization called the DeKalb County Old People's Fund? Yeah. And no one knows what that is or whether they got the money. Um, that's that's so clandestine. 
I speculate that it was a little group in Sycamore, but I've never been able to conclusively prove that. You got to get to the bottom of this, Steve. This is this is incredible stuff. <laughs> I've read all three of their wills. They have them in the county records. Matter of fact, they have a, an actual copy of Hayes' will, and he was very specific about what was to happen to his mansion after he died. His wife had died in 1918, about eight years before him. At the time of her death, they'd been married 71 years, but never had children. Whether she couldn't get pregnant or he couldn't make her pregnant, we don't know. By the 1870s, he did have an adopted son whose name supposedly was Franklin. And according to lady who lived next door to his mansion, Beatrice Gurler, who I knew the last four years of her life, who was a first cousin of Mrs. Perry Elwood's, the adopted son in the 1890s fell out of favor with Jacob and got disowned. But the will, with regard to the house, it said that if she is still in my employ at the time of my death, the home and its contents are to be left for the use of Anna Anderson, who has been a housekeeper of mine for 18 years. And the world was very specific as to how that building was to be maintained. In as good condition as when received by her. And that <laughs> statement was, was reprinted three times in the document. <laughs> But he didn't think far enough ahead to what should happen after Anna Anderson's death. Right. So, so there's nothing in the will that says, please destroy it for a parking lot for a local church. There's nothing in the will. No, no. The, 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 all right. the bulk of Hayes' estate was to be left for the construction of the Jacob Hayes Memorial Hospital which technically never came into existence. In 1953, Anna Anderson died. The state rented the mansion out for short periods of time over a period of the, about two years to people of means. And then in 1955, decided the mansion was just another asset of the estate. If we're ever going to realize Hayes' dream of having his own hospital, we've got to liquidate all the physical assets of the estate, and the house is just another physical asset. So they put it up for sale for $25,000. First Lutheran Church, diagonally across the street, bought it because they were landlocked by streets, the public library, and other buildings that they couldn't possibly obtain. But they let it be known from the outset they weren't interested in owning and maintaining another old building. It was the land that it sat on for future use. They might, in the future, at some time, need to tear the house down to utilize the land for other purposes, which is what they finally did when they were unable to sell the house in 1961 for $25,000, which was what they originally had paid for it themselves. And supposedly they had refused to sell it to anyone associated with the Haitian state or the Haitian family, 
one local individual who died about 20 years ago, whose father was the last living trustee of the Haitian state, told me that there was a handshake agreement in 1955 between his father and the, and the pastor of the Lutheran Church, that if the church couldn't afford to properly maintain the house, that his father would buy it back from them personally. That handshake agreement, according to him, went out the window in 1961. Wow. That's very interesting. He always blamed, to the day he died in 1999, he always blamed the pastor of the church at the time for having been responsible for tearing the house down. He claimed they specifically brought that pastor to DeKalb for the specific purpose of tearing the house down. That was not true, though. The pastor had been there already 10 years. Yeah, it sounds a little conspiratorial, but, but they still reneged on, on a deal, though. Yeah. Wow. But they didn't have it in writing. Just to right. a handshake agreement. Ah, a man's words, a man's words. It's, I mean, I don't know. I, I maybe maybe I have a different mentality on that. But you stand by what what you agree to. Uh, so, so that's I mean that's incredibly interesting history of the house. I I do want to get into the patent wars really quickly because this yeah. kind of defines. The, these three guys for the next, you know, almost twenty years from seventy three until eighteen ninety two. Yeah. So, how, so just walk me through this a little bit. It started obviously in as early as eighteen seventy three in December uh, when these guys were filing their patents and then started a battle. Um, how, what? How did that? What happened? If I remember correctly, from what I've read over the years, he filed the original patent suit against Glidden claiming infringement because he had gotten a patent in January of 1874 on a wire which was not his bestseller, the S-Bar. He came up with the S-Bar in August of 1875, but he never mass-produced that earlier wire, apparently. Okay. But the S-Bar, was, that was his, like, that's his key that was, piece, right? That was his, his pride and joy. And I do want to mention this before we step away from it, is that the, that Supreme Court hearing uh, the, or judgment in 1892 about patent law kind of has ripple effects to this day, doesn't it? I would agree to that, yes. And it's kind of because you're talking – it's funny because we, we talked about earlier on when, when you said you know legally they're the ones who have it and you know we talked about all – I was mentioning all the patents that were earlier. This is a very interesting time from a patent and an inventor and a creative standpoint because the little nuances, you know, as you pointed out, the nuances in language mentioning the effectiveness of certain things, you know, the S-barb versus a rat barb, you know, when you're looking at 300 types of barbed wire. Right. They all essentially have the same function. Those little details are crucial, and there were millions of dollars at stake with this. Right. And wasn't, wasn't the 1890s the time when the Sherman Antitrust Act was originally passed, which was so adamantly opposed to the creation of trusts? That's a good point. Well, and, and, and there was – so there was a lot of – DeKalb became – it was called Barb City, which I love that term. The high school athletic teams still call themselves the Barbs. Oh, I didn't know that. That's there are great. several buildings in DeKalb that use the name Barb in their name. The <laughs> DeKalb awesome. Public Hospital, which closed in 1975, is now a senior citizen retirement home, Barb City Manor. The original 1922 building 
was the Joseph F. Glidden Hospital. The 1961 addition to the building was the Jacob H. Hospital. But after DeKalb Public Hospital closed and the first Kishwaukee Hospital opened off of Sycamore Road in 1975, they did not tap any of the H monies anymore. They weren't the Jacob H. Memorial Hospital. In 1981, the Haitian state went back into court to get the terms of Haitian's will reinterpreted so they could donate $100,000 each to Oak Crest to Calvary Retirement Center and Kishwaukee Hospital. And the court said, yes, you can do that. But in the case of the money to the hospital, whatever it's used for has to be named for Mr. H. And it was used for the surgical department. When the present Kishwaukee Hospital opened in 2007, the last 400 and some odd thousand dollars of Haitian's money was donated by the Haitian state to the new hospital for creation of the emergency department, which is named for Haitian and which has a portrait of Haitian, a picture of Haitian on, uh, on the wall. I mean, these guys were, they were very wealthy individuals. Um, and DeKalb was the center of barbed wire manufacturing, which gave them their incredible wealth. Right. Uh, and, and, and so just, just to kind of put this into perspective, I mean, there were – let me see if I have the numbers here. Correct me if I'm wrong here. But there were three – so in 1878, it went from 3 million – pounds sold of barbed wire to 13 million pounds sold. Right. Uh, I mean, and that's just, that's in, that's just in 1978. And for, for several years after that, the, the total, total amount of wire continued to double. I mean, that's incredible. And I mean, the railroads were using a lot of this. This is the same time when the railroads yeah. are being built to protect, you know, both the the um, cattle uh, cattle ranchers from having their livestock decimated by a railroad car, but also to protect the railroad from having to pay out. All the railroads were claiming that they were paying as much as $25,000 a year for the death of, of cattle. Yeah, that's, that's insane. Um, and what's actually crazy is, you know, we've we're kind of running out of time here. So I'm doing like a speed version of barbed wire in the West because, you know, the railroads are very important. They bought tons of barbed wire to protect themselves and the cattle ranchers. But also when the farmers were protecting their crops with a lot of this fencing, as the 1870s and the 1880s kind of wore on and people, it was settling, uh, you know, in the West, this affected a lot of the cattle ranchers because they couldn't drive their cattle to grazing lands and to water. So water rights became an issue. Right. You know, people, you know, people were cutting fences. There were gangs to both protect fences and cut fences. I mean, this was a huge war that took, you know, I think close to a decade to kind of settle out. And some people died in these range wars as they were. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's kind of an, in, in, in incredible story uh there is one interesting piece that i came across of because as i mentioned as at the start of this that barbed wire kind of has an image issue uh as being very negative and very oppressive but there was really a one really cool fact that i came across that that kind of puts barbed wire in a positive light is that you know as i mentioned to telegraph the in the communication intercontinental communication is very important and a lot of these rural areas didn't have telephone poles telegraph wires any of this kind of stuff but there was a kit that they could create. And while barbed wire 
fencing, the steel barbed wire, didn't have the same reception and connect, uh, conductivity as copper wire, they were able to kind of rig up using barbed wire a way to tap into the phone lines, which were far mm-hmm. down, and which allowed them to become early adopters of the telephone. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's a positive aspect. I think we should end barbed wire there. That's a brief history of barbed wire. You know, a deep dive into some of the personalities, and you know, the, the history in DeKalb is incredible. I recommend people go there, learn about these three guys because you know we didn't even really touch on um, how they, uh, this, you know, the patent war that went on for twenty years, how it really got the effect on the community. Uh, but these were three really interesting guys that created history, um, and DeKalb uh, has n- never been the same. Uh, it's a very interesting story, and you know, you're the one, you're the guy there. You're you're a piece of living history yourself, and I do think that we should push for a 20 year anniversary um, revamp of Barbed Wire Pioneers. I would have called it the Barbed Wire Barons, but Barbed Wire Pioneers still works. It's a great documentary. You are the f- a focal historian on that. As a matter of fact, when when they uh, when, when Jeff Cowan, uh managed to convert the VHS tape to DVD. There was an 18th anniversary re-showing of the Barbary Parent Pioneers program at the Egyptian Theater in downtown DeKalb, which was very well attended by yeah. the public. It's a documentary that holds up. I mean, it's a really good documentary. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. It was held on September 22nd, 2016, and... September 22nd happens to be my birthday. Oh, happy birthday. was also the anniversary. Historically, it was the last day of the demolition of the Hay House in 1961. (laughs) I love the fact we are really pounding this one into the ground, literally. I love that. (laughs) Keep coming back to it. Disgrace on the town of DeKalb. Um, well, and, and one of the nuggets in that documentary is how these three came together to bring NIU there, and I would be remiss yeah. as a proud alum to not talk about that. So you're going to stick around and talk to me a little. We're going to do a little bonus episode. We're going to talk about that. Um, so if you're listening, stick around. Um, but I want to thank you, Steve, for sitting down and talking to me about these these three wonderful, in, interesting characters and the impact that Barb Wire had on American history. So thank you. I have very much enjoyed speaking with you today. Well, thank you very much. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to FascinatingNouns.com to check out more about this episode and to follow the show on social media. You can find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. You can also subscribe to a newsletter and learn about upcoming guests, behind-the-scenes tidbits, all that kind of stuff. And if you like this show, you're going to love my latest podcast, Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies, where I sit down with former guest, friend of the show, Dr. Michael Denon, superhero physicist, and Ben Seepser, who's a rocket scientist, and we analyze 
fictional science and make it a reality, uh, pop culture, science fiction, comic books, anything you'd find at a comic book convention. If you love that kind of stuff, we make it a reality. Everlasting Gobstoppers, the T-1000, Frankenstein's Monster. Uh, we got all kinds of stuff. Check it out, fggbt.com. And if you like that, and if you like fascinating nouns, and you want to be a part of the fascination, check out danieljglenn.com for all of my projects. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.